Hey everybody, it's good to be with you for this second bonus teaching on uh, women in ministry. As you know by now, we have shifted our um, position on women elders to be fully mutualists, where uh, women, we believe the Bible teaches that women can do all ministries. They're all open to women in the church, including elder and senior pastor. And this week, what I wanted to do was kind of walk us through Jesus and women for a little bit. Michelle hit that really well. I, I would encourage you to watch that sermon from Sunday. But then really look at what the gospel does when it comes to relationships between men and women, uh, particularly as it relates to the church and within the church. If you remember, we talked about where do you start when you enter the Bible and you ask this question about women and the Bible. And so many people start from one of the three kind of challenging passages. First uh, Timothy, do you start there? Do you start in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14? And what people have tended to do is start there and then read back over all these other passages regarding women in the Bible. But we believe that the best place to start, or I believe the best place to start, is to start with the women in the Bible as a whole. And then to look at Jesus and women and then the gospel and women. And that's where we're at today. We're looking at the gospel and women. We looked at the Old Testament and women. We looked at, and what we saw there was that in Genesis, uh, God created man and women in his image, that the woman was a corresponding, and the word that is translated suitable helper is the word Isaiah. And it, it doesn't mean like helper in a subordinate type of way, but it's often used in the Old Testament. That same word is used of God. And it's normally in the context of strength or rescue. And so Eve was created as a corresponding strength, a corresponding rescue, a corresponding help that would be compatible, corresponding to him. There is no indication of subordination in that. And then we saw in the Old Testament women that were rulers, women that were prophets, women that played leadership roles within Israel. And despite the patriarchal culture, women continued to show up as Isaiah. The stories of women in the Old Testament are women showing strength, women showing rescue, even though it's a patriarchal culture. Today we're going to look at Jesus and women, real briefly, and then the gospel and women. So we saw in Michelle's sermon that Jesus initiated a reordering of these disordered relationships that resulted from the fall. Those disordered relationships were uh, wreaking havoc, right? They disordered relationships socially. They disordered relationships religiously, racially, and with gender, showing when Jesus dismantled those, he was overthrowing the question of who has value in the kingdom. 
and what status in the kingdom actually looks like. In Jesus' kingdom, all are equal, all are loved by God in Jesus, and are given status by grace through faith as sons and daughters, equal before God and one another in the kingdom of God. And often what Jesus was doing was reversing the social status, showing that he not only taught that the first will be last and the last will be first, but he lived it out in how he treated people, particularly women. The Samaritan woman at the well, the woman who anointed Jesus before his death, the women who were his disciples, the women who supported him, the women that were at the cross and the empty tomb, uh, particularly in the resurrection event. When Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, we are given a reversal of the first creation story. John, in his gospel, starts it out in John 1, then the begin was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that all things were created through the Word. That is his uh, preamble of the gospel that is really a new, a, a new creation story. And so when we come to the resurrection morning, we're in a garden again, echoing that garden of Genesis. In that garden where Eve picked the fruit that led to death, now we have a woman in the garden who is the witness of the first fruits of new creation. She is announcing the resurrection of Jesus as the first witness. And John is writing a new creation story. And with that, a, whim, a woman who this time is receiving the first fruit of resurrection and life in Jesus. And so we see how Jesus treated women. Now, I want to ask the question, how does the gospel reorder what was disordered in the fall, how does the work of the gospel in our lives through the Spirit collectively address the status of women and their roles in the church? How does the gospel build off of the original creation of women as Isaiah? We look at that creation without subordination, that strong help and rescue, the women who are leaders and rulers and prophets. And so, I want you to tie into Michelle's sermon there. One of the questions that's often asked is, why did Jesus pick 12 men to be his first apostles? This is a question that, that struck me, that I struggled with in this conversation. And yet, what I come to believe is that something larger is going on with Jesus' life and the putting together of the church. He did, in fact, pick 12 men to be apostles. But the other question that I think we need to ask is, why did he pick 12 Jewish men? Why not Gentile men as well? The automatic assumption would be that if he's picking 12 male apostles to show that the leadership in the church, which is a church that is created in Jesus that will be Jew and Gentile, should be male leadership, then it would make sense that Jesus would pick Jew and Gentile men to be the 12 apostles, having that authority, and yet that's not what he does. If the point was male authority in the church, then 
it should have been male authority that represented the breadth of Jew and Gentile, but he didn't. He chose 12 Jewish men. Why is that? And I believe the answer is that Jesus, in his life, is retelling the story of Israel. And he is the one who will do what Israel couldn't do. He is the faithful Israelite who goes into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days, and yet he fully trusts and obeys the Father and does not succumb to doubt and to temptation. Um, he is the one that is going to suffer so that he can be a light to the Gentiles through his salvation. He is the one that brought together one new humanity in Jew and Gentile, uniting one new people in Jesus. And so when he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, he comes out, he defeats the enemy in the temptation. He opens the scroll in Luke 4 to Isaiah 61 and fulfills that that anointed one who would come from God. He picks 12 Jewish men to re represent the 12 sons of Jacob, who will represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He says in Matthew 19, Truly I tell you that at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the 12 apostles being men is not about male authority, but it's about Jesus creating a new people of God. And these 12 apostles who will rule over the 12 tribes on 12 thrones, he is retelling the Israel story. He's fulfilling the Israel story through the church. That is one possible and I think strong reason why Jesus didn't appoint women apostles. Now, what did Jesus accomplish through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending the Spirit when it comes to the part women would play in the planting of the church and the advancement of the gospel through the church? But what does the gospel do when it comes to how women will participate in fulfilling the Great Commission? As we have said in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, that the prophecy of Joel is fulfilled at Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days and they will prophesy. And so we see this promise spoken long ago through the prophet being fulfilled at Pentecost uh, when the spirit is given. Both women and men receive the spirit without discrimination. Both women and men prophesy. And so here is the birth of the church. And what we find is that the gospel has brought together uh, this new people that are filled with the Spirit, and both men and women are going to play a critical role in the gospel 
ministry. The next passage I want us to look at is Galatians chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, the Apostle Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For although you who were baptized into Christ, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. It's important that we understand Paul's new creation theology and that what Jesus has done, what the gospel has accomplished is revolutionary. That through the gospel in the church, these systems of inequality and subordination are being dismantled. He points to three categories of this between Jews and Gentiles, slaves and masters, men and women. What this means, it is not the expectation that what this means then is everyone in leadership at the church now will all be white, male, and Gentile, like at a church at Imago. That's the assumption we often make. We often look at Jew and Gentile and think religious people, non-religious people, but we can't think like that. What Jesus has dismantled is the Jews who are subordinating the Gentiles, believing that they are the chosen people. They are the ones who are the people of the covenant and the law and the Torah. They are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And here are these Gentiles, these just barbarians who show up. And so, of course, the Jews would be uh, subordinating the Gentiles. And Paul comes along and he says, no, That is over. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. You are all one in Christ. Masters in the culture who were subordinating slaves, they were the wealthy who owned the poor and put them to work. And Paul comes in and says, now in the church, through the gospel, you are not master and slave, you are brother. And brother, sister, and sister. And he does the same thing with men and women, that in a culture where women couldn't give testimony, had very few rights, that if they didn't come from a wealthy family, they were uneducated and often slaves. And he says, in the church, there is no male subordination of women. And he's undoing the assumptions that the culture at large makes about who matters, who can lead, and who has God's given favor because of their status, because of their race, because of their gender. So in the church, what Paul is saying, that there is this new humanity, and it is not like, for instance, in America, a white male humanity or a white or a Roman male humanity, or a Jewish male humanity, but it is a mosaic of equals with difference. In other words, slaves and masters are now sitting together in church as 
sons and brothers of one father, sharing in one spirit with one Lord. It means that men and women are on equal footing before God and before each other, brothers and sisters of the same father, saved by Jesus personally and collectively, filled by one and the same spirit. That Jew and Gentile, regardless of the promises, that that promise that the that we would all be one in Christ, Jew and Gentile, that dividing wall of hostility has been broken through the crucified body of Jesus, and now they are equals before God. This is scandalous in this day. This is revolutionary. This is a word that is falling on the lips of people and the ears of people who live in an empire that divides and continues to be disordered through race, religion, and gender. And yet in the church, Paul is saying there is one type of person of value, and that is the children of God who come to God by faith in Christ. And say, they are collectively, they bring their unique differences together without diminishing each other to make up this one people of Christ. And so the, the beauty of the body of Christ it is this collective of equals, uh, unique in ethnicity, unique in gender, unique in experience and age and religious background, and yet together they make up this one body of Christ. It, this is going to matter when we see how women are leading in the New Testament church in a little bit and how Paul is wrestling uh, with the social codes because this is a church that despite their equality still lives in this empire with all of its disordered structure. And so it's important that we understand that Paul is first and foremost concerned that this one new people of God be good citizens and live out of the social codes in respectable ways so that the gospel won't be hindered and that through the church's expression of equality and family uh, in God within the bonds of love, the church will subvert those social codes. Always subvert, never overthrow. Now, that might strike us as frustrating, but Paul's missiological priorities explain much of the teaching that we find in the epistles regarding men and women, slaves and masters in this context of who you truly are, equal before God, in a context of mutual submission. But we are going to live as respectable citizens in this culture that we're in so that the gospel can go forward. It also explains the reversal of the authority of husbands over wives. When in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives women authority over their husbands' bodies within the church. In other words, much of his instruction to women and to slaves is not because Paul supports women, uh, slavery, or hierarchy, but because Paul wants to see the gospel go forward not become a social agenda, but as the message of God becoming king of the world 
and, by, and people by faith through grace, being united to the Father through Jesus by the Spirit. And I realize that as, we, as you read through these social codes uh, that we find in the epistles, instructions to men and women, instructions to masters and slaves, I realize that Paul's priorities may sound archaic at, for us at our time. But I believe that within our context, Paul would be telling us to be good citizens in our time, not first century Ephesus or Galatia. He, wants, he would want the gospel to go forward and not be hindered in our time. And he wouldn't want it to be mistaken as a move to overthrow the government, but instead that it would be a message that God has become the world's king in Jesus, defeated death and sin and hell. And I believe the social codes for today would reflect our culture in the extent that they are founded in righteousness. And I believe it would push back on the social norms within our culture that are not founded on righteousness. But what we can say is that Jesus, through the gospel, has dismantled the subordination of all people in the church and placed us on equal footing as sons and daughters by grace in Jesus. And so what I believe is really important for us today is to understand that while there is still patriarchy within our culture, that Paul would be fanning the flame of equality between men and women. 1 Corinthians 12, this is the other, a third passage that I want, and I, and I believe that these passages ground us in the, the new creation theology that kind of explains what's happening when we look at the women of the New Testament. And so 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to read verse 7 and verses 11 through 14. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them, each one, just as he determines. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its parts, many parts, form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not up made up of one part, but of many. Now you hear within that, that unique mosaic, that equality with difference. The gifts of the Spirit are poured out and given without distinction between gender, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, and for our purposes, women or men. The Spirit gives them without distinction. And when we look at the list of leadership gifts in Ephesians chapter 4, it's important for, to know that there are a few different lists of spiritual gifts within the scriptures in Romans 12, in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 14, and Ephesians 4. I don't know that they're exhaustive. In other words, there may be gifts that the scripture doesn't refer to that are gifts of the Spirit. But for our purposes today, I want us to look at the leadership gifts that Paul refers to. 
And so he says in Ephesians 4, verse 8, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And that is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And when he who descended is the very one who ascended to higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe, so Christ himself gave. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's important to note that what he says here is that the gifts are given to each one of us, and that is without distinction. It's solely based on the grace of God and Christ appropriating the gifts as he chooses. Verse 8 again, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Okay, and so what we see is that is without distinction. Leadership gifts that are lined out in Ephesians 4 have the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service and to build up the body of Christ until it reaches maturity. And so it would make sense that these gifts would be given to both men and women, given the makeup of the body of Christ, which is both men and women, who are led by apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers that are would also be men and women. And so do we see this in Scripture, though? Do we find women fulfilling these roles? And that's the question I want to turn to next. One of the fascinating chapters in the Bible is Romans 16. And I know often when we read the books of the Bible, particularly the, the letters that Paul has written, we get to the end and there's these lists of greetings. We don't really read them. Uh, they're full of names that sound weird. We don't really see what is so important in that. But what's really important to remember is the Bible is a very, very human book, right? It's written by humans to humans. It is the revelation of God, yes, but it is the revelation of God incarnated in very human world, words, relationships, letters, pen and ink, right, or quill and scroll. And so what we find when we read these lists of names and these greetings and thank yous and pray fors is that we find these humans, we find the men and the women, the friends, the co-workers, the enemies of Paul. And that's what we find in Romans 16. Paul is writing this letter of Romans, which as you know, is the magnum opus of his theology. And he's writing it to Rome really as a missionary support letter. He's hoping to go to Spain. He's hoping that they'll support him. And in Romans 16, 1, he writes this. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centuria, and I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. 
Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friends, Epineta, I can't even pronounce that one, uh, who was the first convert in Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampelatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, who is our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Tryphenia and Trophosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who's been a mother to me. And so there's a huge list. That's not all the women, but it's a good chunk of them. And what we find is we find these apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists within the New Testament. So who is Junia? Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, and he calls them outstanding apostles, outstanding among the apostles. So Junia is an apostle. She is a prominent apostle among the apostles. She was in prison for being a missionary with Paul who would have, uh, as an apostle, been evangelizing and church planning. And so when Paul says, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before me. He is saying that this woman, Junia, is an apostle. And so when we look back at the twelve. Like, we realize what Jesus was doing there, but that didn't mean there would never be any more apostles or women would never be apostles. Now, for many of you, you've never heard of Junia, and for a long time, Junia was exiled out of the translations, even out of the Greek text. They changed the name to Junian which was not a known Roman name or Greek name at the time, but they changed it because they assumed that women couldn't be apostles. And they removed Junia forever and buried her under a fake male Roman name. Thankfully, she was resurrected. Um, and, and as she was re resurrected, there, was, there is more recognition today than ever that Junia was indeed a female apostle. And so that resurrection's important, obviously, because uh, it shows that there are other Junias out there who have apostolic gifting, and those gifts can take flight. For more on this, I would encourage you to read Scott McKnight's little book, Junia is Not Alone. It's a fascinating Sad in many regards, read, but thankfully, Junia has resurrected. And so we have a woman apostle. apostle. Among prophets, this is an easy one because we see women who are declaring God's will, making known the mysteries of Christ by the Spirit. We see it in Anna at Christ's birth. We see it at Pentecost, men and women. In Corinthians, Paul encourages men and women to prophesy. In Acts 21, we see Philip's four daughters that were given the gift of prophecy. And so we see many women as prophets. We also see them as teachers. 
Priscilla is a Roman woman who is married to a Jewish man named Aquila. And they meet Paul in Corinth, and 18 months later, they move to Ephesus. They travel with Paul. They risk their lives for the gospel, as Paul tells us here in Romans. And they teach in a house church in Ephesus. And it's in this house church that Priscilla teaches Apollos along with Aquila. And so having, there's a couple things that are really interesting that we need to note. Having Priscilla's name precede Aquila, that's a unique thing that we don't see often in that culture. Normally, the name of the woman would be behind the name of the man. Secondly, if it was referring to the woman's home, it would be the man's home, not saying Lydia's house or Nympha's house. Uh, but here in the New Testament, we see Priscilla's name preceding Aquila. That was a sign that she was significant in the relationship, that she may have been uh, the prominent one in terms of teaching. We also see that many times women's names aren't mentioned at all in external writings of this time. So having women's names come first is a sign of her leadership among the two of them. And we know that Priscilla risked her life for the gospel. What's interesting to me is uh, what we find in Acts chapter 18. It says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. And then he left the brothers and sisters, and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Quilla. And before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in uh, Centuria because of a vow he had taken. That's probably where he met Phoebe. Then he arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Quilla. He himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. So Priscilla and Quilla are in Ephesus, and that's where they are teaching and pastoring. In Acts 18.26, it talks about Apollos, that Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Uh, Apollos hadn't, had only received the baptism of John the Baptist at that point. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard them, they invited them to their home and they explained the way of God more adequately. And so Apollos more than likely receives the baptism of Jesus in the baptism of the Spirit. That's what we see through the book of Acts. And so here's Priscilla in Ephesus teaching and church planning with her husband, risking her life for the gospel. And that is the very place that Timothy eventually goes to, uh, to oversee the churches there. And Paul writes to Timothy, I don't let a woman teach or have authority over a man. Right? So what's actually happening there? We can see that when we take a wider study of women leading the church in New, the New Testament, that it's very possible that something else might be going on that Paul is addressing. And we'll look at that next week because Priscilla is in Ephesus and she is teaching men, particularly authoritative men like Apollos. So we see women teaching pastors. The word pastor is interesting because we don't see it show up in reference to people in the New Testament. The word only shows up once in Ephesians 4, where it's talking about this gift that I just, talk, that I just read. No one is particularly called a pastor 
in the New Testament. They are leaders. They're leaders who held church. There's leaders who held church in their home or hosted in their home. We do see the charge of shepherding the flock, but the word pastor is not used. And yet we find over and over women who are leading churches within their home or maybe just hosting. Lydia in Philippi, she comes to faith. We find Paul being supported when we read the book of Philippians only by this church. In Acts, she is one of those listening, was a woman from the city of Thyatria named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Later on, Paul and Silas are in prison, and they come out of prison. They go straight where? To Lydia's house. And what do we find in Lydia's house? We find the brothers and the sisters in the Lord there encouraging in them. And so we know that a church is established in Philippi. We know that Lydia is a woman of wealth. She had a church a home that was big enough to have multiple people. She had the means to show hospitality, to feed and to help and to serve many of the brothers and sisters. And so it makes sense that she was leading a house church in Philippi. We also have Nympha in Colossians. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Again, this is a woman who both Lydia and Nympha, there's no mention of the man. There's no mention of the man owning the house. There is only Lydia, only Nympha, and their house. And so it makes sense that these are women who in that culture, when most women are uneducated wives or uneducated slaves, there are women of wealth and privilege in that culture who had considerable influence. If they came from a place of privilege, then they were educated along with men. They would have had authority over their own inheritance or dowry. In that culture, the dowry wasn't given to the man. It remained with the woman. And so even though the man might receive land when he married the woman, that property would stay with the woman. And so they had authority and charge over their own money, their own inheritance. And because of these factors, that these women would be educated, business leaders, influential, having their own wealth and means, their own homes, uh, it makes sense that the Spirit would gift them and use them to take the gospel forward in that day. They made great leaders and pastors who could read and who could teach, who had leadership experience, who had influence through their business and education, who had status in the area. It's highly re irregular to refer to them by name alone, knowing that they are probably married or widowed, but the Bible refers to them by name without reference to any man that they might be associated with. So we see women who are hosting or shepherding churches in their homes, um, and they are referred to by themselves, which more than likely means they were leading those house churches. How about evangelism? Well, we know that Paul is the premier evangelist and church planner. 
and that anyone in his circle who is working with him is being encouraged to do the work of the evangelist, to go into places the gospel hasn't been, to preach the gospel, to build churches with the new believers, to appoint elders. We see this with Timothy. We see this with others. And the word that is normally used uh, isn't evangelist. It is co-worker. Co-worker is a, Paul, a word that Paul uses as this broad de- designation of leadership in his apostolic ministry. The center of that ministry was evangelism in synagogues, in town squares, in homes, before kings and judges. And Paul took people with him, both men and women, to do this work. And so we see these people called co-workers. We see co-worker used of Titus, Epaphroditus, Clement, Jesus called Justice, and Timothy, right? Timothy and Titus, these sons of Paul in faith, they're called co-workers. These are the ones who are with him doing the work of evangelism and church planning. But we also see that word co-worker used of women. We see Paul use it of Priscilla, we see him use it of Eodia and Syntyche. Sorry, I always struggle with those names in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, Paul says, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Jesus. And so we see these women, and in Philippians, many times people read that passage in Philippians 4 about Iodia and Syntyche as these bickering women, right? These women who are just like gossiping in the church and not getting along. And that's anything, but that is not true. These are women who are co-workers with Paul. They might be having an argument about what, where to evangelize next. They might be having a doctrinal discussion. They might be having typical leadership issues with each other. They're not just bickering off in the corner. And Paul calls them co-workers, just like he calls Timothy his co-worker, just like he calls Titus his co-worker. We see other women that Paul recognized as working for the Lord, Mary and Tryphenia and Tryphoa and Paris and Rufus's mother, right? We see them, at Paul going, these people are working hard in the Lord. Well, what is that work? That work typically for Paul is the work of evangelizing, church planning, risking your life for the gospel, spreading the mission, getting the Great Commission out there. And so we see women as apostles, as prophets, as teachers, as pastors, and doing the work of an evangelist. Finally, there's Phoebe. And that's where we started in Romans 16.1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centuria, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. What's interesting is why why is he talking about Phoebe in this way? Well, it's a letter 
And Phoebe is the one that Paul has chosen to deliver that letter. So as they read it, they are going to be receiving it from Phoebe. And Paul is saying, I want you to know about Phoebe. He says a couple of things about Phoebe. One, she's a deacon. That is a leadership position within the church of Centuria. The other word he uses is she is a benefactor. Now, that's not a word that makes a lot of sense to us in our language, but it was a term of great importance in that culture. It's a term that during that time meant that this was a partner, uh, a partnership, maybe someone that I have received help from in partnership. And what he's doing here is this is a recommendation letter of Phoebe to them. In those days, recommendations were not based on what a person could do. Like today, if someone says, hey, can you write me a recommendation letter? It's basically, this person's a great worker. They show up on time, yada, yada, yada. In Roman time, character is what matters. Right, Not what you could do, but who you were. What was your character? And Paul is telling the Romans, I vouch for her character. The Romans are big on character and big on status. And benefactor is a position of status. Paul is saying, you can trust Phoebe. She is loyal to me and I am loyal to her. Benefactor was a word that meant socially superior status. He was saying she is at the top tier of people you could trust. And yet it's not this arrogant title because he adds to it the title of deacon, right? Which is a servant of the Lord. So it blunts that arrogance. She is a servant of the Lord serving to lead the church and a benefactor of Paul. We see this with Joanna in, uh, similarly in Jesus's ministry in Luke's gospel, where he says that she is the wife of Cheza, who oversaw Herod's, um, some role in Herod's house. It's that benefactor relationship. By her resources, she's supporting Jesus's ministry. And so what Phoebe does is she carries the letter of Romans from Greece to Rome, it's over 100 miles. Paul put so much trust in her and entrusting her with his magnum opus, right? His own teaching and authority. And he commends her to the church that she travels to in order to deliver Paul's letter. Now, he could have chose Timothy. He could have chose Silas. He could have chose Barnabas. He could have chose so many people. <clears throat> to deliver the letter of Rome, but he chose Phoebe. He said, I can entrust her with this letter, and I can recommend her to the church in Rome, the deacon, the benefactor, the leader, Phoebe. Now, if women are leading in the church of the New Testament like this, uh, at a time when, I mean, think about the book of Romans, how many thousands of commentaries have been written about the book of Romans? And Phoebe comes and she brings him the letter and she opens it and she reads it to the church. Do you think anybody has a question? 
right? Like we've, we have been spending millennia like working on working out Paul's teaching on the book of Roman. And they would have been asking Phoebe, who had firsthand knowledge of Paul's teaching. So she's delivering the letter and she's teaching the letter of Romans. Women are leading in the church of the New Testament, despite this highly patriarchal culture where women are subordinated in the vast majority of places within that culture during that time. But in the church, we see the fruit of new creation theology. We see in Acts 2 and Galatians 3 and 1 Corinthians 12, this subversion of those structures through this mutual leadership of men and women serving Christ, doing the work of the gospel, right? As equals with difference, as sons and daughters of God, how much more should women be playing leadership roles in our culture that while it's still patriarchal, women are given much more freedom than they would have in those days? I fear that what we have been doing in the church is subjecting women to the culture of the biblical world, not the freedom of the biblical witness. Let me say that again. I fear that what we've been doing in the church is subjecting women to the subordinated culture of the biblical world, not the freedom that we find in the biblical witness. How backwards is that? To place the patriarchal culture of the biblical world onto our sisters when Paul and others were setting women free from that very culture. That is why I'm excited about our journey together as women take up the role of elder at Imago along with men, that we will be working with both sets of hands in the body of Christ, serving Christ in the work of the gospel together as one new humanity in Christ, led by the gifted men and women who are for the glory of Christ and the fulfillment of the Great Commission are doing the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ, to equip us and to become mature. And so with all of this in mind, next time we meet, we will address those three passages that seem on the surface to be teaching that Women shouldn't be doing any of this. Until next time, I look forward to seeing you then.